I'm going to preach this morning on the theme, Worthy Witnesses. Worthy Witnesses. Well, church, I have a question for you this morning. Has the tsunami hit your house yet? You know the one, the the flood that inundates our mailboxes from now until December 26th, full of cards and greetings from family, neighbors, friends, frenemies, colleagues from near and far. Now, some of these cards will be like this one. They'll announce babies that are new, but are not welcome by all members of the family. (laughs) Some of the cards will be more like this one, a reflection on the digital age and perhaps a critique on the modern family. Other cards may be more like this one, those that have been ordered before the breakup. And so... The joy that is being sent is to be determined. Or maybe you'll receive a card from a member of the Fur family, one that asserts strongly that you better have a Merry Christmas or else. And finally, perhaps you'll receive a card like this, one that is a cautionary tale on the necessity of sunscreen even in the winter months. But you see, the hardest part of Christmas cards is not what kind we choose. The hardest part is determining who will receive them. And I know this personally, because when Javon and I got married, we wanted to send our very first Christmas card as a married couple to everyone that we invited to our wedding, everyone that was a member of the first church that we were serving together, and all of our other family and friends. And it didn't seem like 850 Christmas cards would be that much of a problem. Until I went to the post office to buy the stamps. That's when I discovered math, multiplication, and dollars and cents. And when the post office clerk told me that my total would be north of $375, I did that thing that you do when you're in a store buying something that you're not sure you can afford. They ask you, you know, do you need some help? And you respond, I'm just browsing. I was just browsing at the stamps, I told the clerk. (laughs) And no, I never showed my face there again. But I did learn an invaluable lesson. I learned that year that who you send Christmas cards to is a reflection of your relationship with them. You see, we all have dozens and dozens of friends and family members and neighbors, but when we have to pay to greet them, we'll find out just how valuable those relationships really are. Because you see, the people at the top of our Christmas list, the ones who always get the card on time, they're usually the ones whose relationship we value the most. And this learning is a curious one when we read the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Because when God decides to send the very first Christmas card into the world, he doesn't address it to who we think 
would be at the top of God's list. If God had a Messiah coming into the world, we would imagine there would be three groups at the top of the list. Number one might be the pastors or the priests. I'm biased, but I like that idea. The ones who read Isaiah out loud in the synagogue and prayed for the Messiah to come. The ones who would be receiving this personalized angelic greeting from God, but no, they didn't make the list. We might think then, if not the priests, then the prophets, the holy and spirit-filled people of God who called all of God's people back to justice, who called them to humility, who called them to walk with the Lord. They would be the ones that would receive this message about the Messiah coming into the world. But no, the prophets, they didn't make the list either. Okay, so if it's not the priests and it's not the prophets, then maybe it's the Romans. Yeah, they're the ones that were in charge of the vast majority of the ancient Near East. Jesus' birth would not simply impact Jews, but Gentiles the world over. Perhaps God would alert this ruling class of this incoming king of kings, this new lord of lords, but no, not even the Romans make the list. No, the ones who received this singing Christmas telegram delivered straight from heaven are not priests, prophets, or politicians. They're shepherds. Shepherds. Now, when we hear that today, we may not recognize just how absurd and crazy and and out of the ordinary this is. Because when we think of shepherds, we imagine pastures of, of sweet and smiling, docile men gently rocking their lambs to sleep. When we hear scriptures like Psalm 23 and we construct this image of shepherds as good, reliable, and kind, But that couldn't be farther from the truth of the way that people saw shepherds in Jesus' day. In fact, they had three deep-seated cultural and religious beliefs about shepherds that weren't so peaceful or picturesque. Number one, they believed that shepherds were untrustworthy vagabonds, you know, like my children. (laughs) A shepherd worth his salt would lead his flock from pasture to pasture to pasture. And landed local residents developed this this bias or this prejudice about these shepherds that they could not be trusted. There's even this colloquial saying that we find in Jewish Midrash that translates, watch this, to the shepherds must have been here. A common phrase that people would utter when they believed that something had been stolen. Now, this distrust of shepherds, it wasn't limited just to location, but even to the legal system. A shepherd was barred from testifying in religious court because they were seen as inherently untrustworthy and therefore unworthy witnesses. And finally... To add insult to injury, shepherds were seen as literally and spiritually unclean. 
Their work of tending to sheep day and night in the hot sun, in the cold wind, left them smelling and looking like their work. And religious law prohibited from coming into the community of faith, the temple, lest they sully it with their smell, with the dirt under their nails, with their very presence. You see, with these three strikes against them, we can now see how absolutely absurd it is that of all the groups of people walking the face of the earth, God decided that the first recipients of the message of Jesus' birth would be these dirty, untrustworthy, and unreliable shepherds. People that no one wanted to be around. People that nobody wanted to sit in the next pew. They are the ones that God shows Jesus to first. And I don't know about you, but it begs the question, why? Why does God put the shepherds at the top of the Christmas reading list when everyone, anyone, would have put them at the bottom? Well, it's simple. The people who matter the least to us are the people who matter the most to God. You see, God's Christmas list is not like ours. It's no respecter of title, position, persona, or reputation. It doesn't account for education, socioeconomic status, or zip code. No, God's list puts the marginalized, the accused, the pushed out, and the looked over at the top. The ones who no one trusts, the ones who no one invites, those are the ones who God invites to sit next to the Savior of the world. And this, this is good news this morning, because there might be somebody here today who believes they're not worthy. There might be somebody here today who feels like a shepherd, discounted, dirty, or distrusted. And God wants you to know this Christmas season that the story of the nativity isn't about other people, better people, or more worthy people. It's about you. Not the you that they say you are. No, this story is about the you that God says you are. Invited. Entrusted. Included. Worthy. Your name is written in ink at the very top of God's list. To sit in the presence of the Savior of the world. You see, God calls the shepherds. And God calls those of us who feel like shepherds and puts us at the top of the list. But that's not all that we learn from this text this morning. When the shepherds hear the good news that they'll have this up close and personal encounter with Jesus, they do not delay. 
They go immediately from the fields that they were laying in to see Jesus laying in the manger. But they wouldn't have if my grandmother was there. You see, when I was growing up, I had eight first cousins that were living in less of a mile radius from my house. And we would get on our bikes, rip and run through each of our neighborhoods, going to my house, my aunt's house, my uncle's house, my grandmother's house, always begging for something to eat and something to drink. But you see, when we would come to my grandmother's door, she would take one look at us, do that deep breath, and then say, stop right there. You are not coming in here looking like that and smelling like outside. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever said this to you, but as a kid, I thought this was absolutely ridiculous. How can you smell like outside? But then I had three kids, and I discovered this unique, pungent, and earthy aroma that is outside. You see, she would not let us sit at her table smelling like outside. We had to clean up. We had to freshen up. We had to make ourselves presentable before we could be in her presence. But not God. When the shepherds are smelling like outside, laying down with their sheep, my grandmother would have fainted at the smell. But God, God invites them to go just as they are. They don't need to make themselves presentable. They are invited to be with Jesus as they are. And my brothers and sisters, so are you. You don't need to clean up the anger that you might be carrying. You can bring it to Jesus just as you are. You don't need to cover the addiction that you might be struggling with. You can bring it to Jesus just as you are. You don't need to mask the sadness. You don't need to conceal the doubt. You don't need to cover up the grief. God knows what you smell like. God knows what you've been through. And God knows all of that and still reserves a seat for you next to Jesus. Just as you are. And if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that again. You don't have to be spiritually spotless to meet with God. You can go to Jesus just as you are. But you do. You do have to be willing to let go. You see, when the shepherds are invited to meet with Jesus, they don't stop to freshen up. But watch this in our text. They also don't stop to gather up their sheep and take them with them to see Jesus. And this should jump off the page when we read it because to a shepherd, sheep are not just what they do, sheep are who they are. The sheep determined what time they woke up, what time they went to bed, where they went, where they didn't go, how much income they had, and how much income their children or children's children might have. The sheep were the shepherd's identity, their, their everything, their livelihood, until 
the angels invite them to the manger. Until the angels invite them to leave everything that they think they are. Everything that they think they need. And let it go. And make their way to Jesus. And I can't help but wonder if Christmas isn't just a journey towards Jesus, but a journey away from the things we think are our livelihood, only to discover the God who really is. And now I know that most of us are not returning to fields of sheep after we leave church today, but that doesn't mean we don't have our own flock. No, the truth is, we all have sheep. Fields and fields and fields full of them. We all have relationships that are constantly bleating for our attention. Responsibilities that weigh down on us like pounds of wool. We all have roles that determine when we get up, when we go to sleep. Where we go, where we don't go, what our income is, and even what our children's children's income might be. You see, outside of these doors, we all have fields, fields of sheep that shape our time, our energy, and even our identity. But you see, Christmas, Christmas is a call out of the field. It's a call away from the work that we think determines who we are. And instead, towards the God who determines who we are. It's the call that the shepherds heard in the field 2,000 years ago. It's the call that the fishermen heard on the shore as they dropped their nets. It's the call that Moses heard coming from a burning bush that was not consumed. And it's the call that each of us hear today. You see, Jesus is in the manger waiting for us. But we'll have to leave the field. Jesus is in the manger waiting for us. But we'll have to let go of some sheep. Jesus is in the manger waiting for us. But we'll have to let go of what we thought we were in order to discover who God is calling us to be. Because you see, the shepherds left the fields as dirty. They left the fields as untrustworthy. They left the fields as unreliable unable to be witnesses in court. But when they left the manger, when they left the transforming presence of Jesus, they left the manger as worthy witnesses of the Son of God. So maybe, maybe the real question for us this Christmas season is what do you need to let go of? What fields do you need to leave behind so that you can meet Jesus 
at the manger and be transformed. Because you see, when we leave the fields of life and we meet Jesus, we become more than we ever thought we could be. And perhaps the greatest gift this Christmas is not something that, that we get, but something that we let go of so that we too might be worthy witnesses. Let us pray. Holy, holy, holy God, you call each of us by name. You put us at the top of your list, not because we deserve it, not because we are perfect, but simply because you love us. You call us out of the fields. You call us to ground our identity, not in what we do, but instead who you are and who you create us to be. Help us in these days before we celebrate Jesus coming into the world to let go of anything that would keep us from the manger, of anything that would keep us from relationship with you, of anything that would keep us from being your worthy witnesses. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.